Well, Father, I am just so grateful for this opportunity to come together as a community. Father, uh, the fellowship we get to enjoy, to be in a room where people have the same love of you, who have been purchased and redeemed by our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is always a joy. And as we look to expand the reach and to become a redeeming community, I pray that this message will help us to be ready to pay the cost, to pay that price, so that we might bring your redemption to Emporia. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this year is the realization of a dream I think we've had for a long time. I think we've been talking about a biblical counseling and discipleship center for five years and change, at least five years. I, I didn't count. Everything seems to be five years ago. But And, and the idea is that we are going to open a counseling, discipleship and counseling center and equip our people to not only disciple one another here, but also have a broader outreach to the community. I always ask the question, do you know anybody who would want some counseling? And everybody does. You might even raise your hand for yourself, right? And so this is a way of equipping people to really take biblical truth and help other people deal with some of the issues in their lives. And many of you have, been, uh, have benefited tremendously from biblical counseling. And when we do this and kind of open it up to the community, uh, there's going to be a number of types of people who will come. There'll, there'll be people who, I've tried everything, and nothing seems to take hold. I'll take a chance on this biblical counseling. Uh, you're going to have friends recommending other friends. Why don't you come to our church? We offer some biblical counseling, and these will be people with struggling marriages. Uh, some of them will struggle with anxiety, uh, depression, perhaps they're under the crushing weight of grief. And... With the Biblical Counseling Center, the goal is not to just give them like 10 sessions and call her good. The goal is to integrate them into really being a part of the body of Christ. We want to take people from over there to in here so that they are part of a, a Bible-loving community with a high view of God and a high view of the Word. So we're basically asking people, to take their problems to us, to take your burdens to us, to take your struggles to us. And there may be an infusion of a lot of needy people. And anytime you have new people come, it can change the dynamics of the church. A number of years ago, we had a large group of people from Chase County, all good, all good, don't worry, they get kind of nervous. They like to sit towards the west, you know, as uh, closer to their county as possible, as close to them as possible. And uh, they changed our church. Two of them are on staff. Uh, it used to be that when our church was done, we were done. Like the parking lot was empty at 12.15. Now they drive all the way out here and says, well, we're going to get as much mileage as possible, and they stay here till 1.15, right? That's the change. And, and so... When you look at what would happen if we bring a bunch of struggling and needy people here, uh, there will be some change. Um, there's a potential that your, your kids might learn a few bad words in Sunday school. There's a potential that that wonderful Bible study that you had, the intimacy and the closeness, will be uh, disrupted by somebody who just feels this need because they're around all these caring people to share their life story every Bible study. Uh, you may have less access to the leadership. 
because they are tied up in these people's lives. Uh, it might be that you feel a personal weight and burden for these people, and Sunday morning is not the time that you really come to enjoy anymore. It's almost like, I need to do this, I need to do this. It's almost like, like work. It, it will change the dynamics of this church, and I think we need to really count the cost of what we're about to do and be ready to pay it. Now, we've been studying Ruth, and incidentally, in a couple of weeks, we're going to start Luke, and we're going to be in there for about a decade, as I figure. <laughs> but one of what's, the great theme of Ruth is hesed love and redemption. And, and this idea of redemption is one of the great themes of the Bible. In the New Testament, it speaks of like a marketplace term, where you buy something out of the, out of the marketplace, right? Afterwards, some of you might redeem yourself some Freddy's, right? Liberate those burgers, you know, from the kitchen and eat it yourself. But when it came to redemption and this idea of purchasing, uh, it had a redeeming purpose when it was applied to many of the Israelites who were impoverished and would sell themselves into slavery, and, and a family member would pay the price to liberate them from bondage, right? And, and that's what Boaz did for Ruth and Naomi. He paid the price. And when you take this theme of redemption and you apply it to the Christian truth, right, the wages of sin is death. We are under bondage to death, and the one who has the power over death, which is Satan, and the cause of death, which is sin, right? We were helpless in our lowly estate. We are under bondage, and that is when Jesus came to redeem us. He paid the price. And, and, and how did he pay the price? Well, Mark 10, 20, 1045. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As a result, we have a redeemed people. And one great thing about the church is we're, we're an oasis of sanity in an insane world, aren't we? I mean, this is like, okay, I'm not crazy. You know, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, this is the way it should be. That is why Sunday, I mean, it's my favorite day of the week. You sing the song, it's like, oh, I love this song. Oh, man, we get to take communion. Oh, we get to have fellowship time. And then the highlight, I get to listen to the sermon, I, I hope. <laughs> I hope that was not, that was agreeing with me laughter. Um, <laughs> But there's a comfort because we're a redeemed community, but part of being a redeemed community is the purpose of it. I think it's encapsulated in our text for the day. It's Galatians 4, 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Right? The purpose of a redeemed community is to form the members of the redeemed community into the image of their Redeemer. Did you get that? The purpose of a redeemed community is to form the members of the redeemed community into the image of their Redeemer, is to become like Christ, right? Christ is a Redeemer. And this is what Paul wants for the Galatian church, but notice the cost. He does it with anguish. Now, anguish, as near as I can tell, is the opposite of enjoyment. 
You're anguished over something. I was anguished over the KU game because they weren't pulling away, right? It's tormenting. It wasn't fun for me anymore or my family. (laughs) But John Wernley has warned that one generation builds it, another enjoys it, and another destroys it. Right? It's really easy to just look at this church as this is my people, this is what I like to do, I like it the way that it is, I really enjoy it just the way it is. And the prospect of forming Christ in other people will be a cost, and that cost is anguish. It's anguish. We'll talk more about it. But when you get deeply involved in other people's lives, and you seek to have Christ formed in them, there will always be a cost. And that cost is anguish. And redemption, it sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Especially when it applies to us. You think about the anguish of Jesus on the cross, how he suffered so that we might be redeemed. But part of being a redeemer, redeemers, by definition, pay the cost. They pay the cost. And if we're going to be a redeeming community, there has to be a willingness in all of us to pay the cost for the redemption of other people. And so how do you do that? Well, from this passage, I have three basic commands. To be a redeemer and a redeeming community, you embrace Paul's view of suffering, You pursue Paul's objective, and you pay Paul's price. Okay, it's on the screen behind me. Embrace Paul's view of suffering. Now, let's look at that passage again. Paul's life was one of anguish and suffering. Galatians 4.19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. Now, he uses this phrase, anguish of childbirth. Now, to state the obvious, Paul is a man who has never experienced anguish in childbirth. You would think he would say, like the anguish of passing a kidney stone, right? That would be more appropriate to something Paul could actually experience. But the problem is, with the kidney stone and all the pain and the anguish, all you get is a rock. (laughs) It's kind of depressing. An ugly rock. But with the pain and anguish of childbirth, there is the pain, but there's also the reward, okay? And so when Paul is using, he's, he's, he's appropriating the term to express his anguish for the Galatians. And notice he says, again, I am again in the anguish of childbirth. This is the second time. See, this makes mention of really the two ways that he suffered. He suffered to give birth to them as children of God, to take the gospel to them. And then again, he suffered to form and is suffering to form uh, Christ in them. See, when you look at Paul's ministry, Paul's ministry was one that was characterized by suffering. Paul, Paul suffered. And what's really fascinating when you read all of Paul's letters is that he thinks deeply about his suffering because people would look at his suffering as almost, um, what did he do, Paul? Kind of like Job's counselors. Job, what did he do? If you've been in ministry, and let's say you share the gospel and it goes poorly, it's very easy for people to say, you must have done it wrong. Or let's say you're counseling somebody and they get pretty mad at you and yell at you and walk out of the counseling room. Somebody would say, well, you must have done something wrong. Right? If you have suffered or people persecute you, that's almost proof that you have done it wrong. 
Right? That's just the natural human nature. We don't want to believe that that would happen to us if we did it that way. They must have done something wrong. And so what Paul struggles to do is to help people to see and help his people to see that the fact that he suffers doesn't discredit his ministry, but it certifies his ministry, that he's doing it the right way. And one of the key passages is in Colossians, specifically 124. Now, it's amazing how Paul's letters are often occasioned by something going wrong in the church that he's writing to. And Paul hasn't been to Colossae, but he still loves them from a distance, and he tries to make it very clear to them that even though I do not know you, I have suffered for you, I do love you, and more than these false teachers do. And he makes a, a pretty remarkable statement. He says in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, you see that little phrase, making up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Does that cause your theological spider sense to go off? Right? Is there anything lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, when it comes to your justification, no. Christ paid it all. It was all nailed to the cross. If you keep on reading in Colossians, it's very clear from the greater context that he's talking about Jesus is Christ and his payment for your sin. It was paid in full. There's no penance, no purgatory required. It's all there for you. You just have to believe. But there is something that seems to be lacking that Paul is addressing. And I think a really good parallel that explains this, and he uses that word lacking and the word filling up, is Philippians 2.30. Now, to give you a little bit of context, Philippians is, is a, uh, a thank you letter from Paul to the Philippians because they sent a bag of money to him through the hands of Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus nearly died in the effort, but he made good. And Paul expresses his, his gratitude in 2.30, talking about Epaphroditus. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So what was lacking in the Philippian service to him? Did they give him a bag of money and Epaphroditus said, well, you know, it's a few denarii short, I'll just go ahead and chip some in. Paul makes it very clear in the letter that he didn't really care about how much money he got. What he cared about was the heart of the Philippians, that they showed their love and their concern and their support of him. And what was lacking is, sure, you know, he got this bag of money, but what he wanted was them. And so Epaphroditus made up for what is lacking because he represents the Philippians to Paul. He added the personal touch. And in this case, Paul, who loved the Philippians, loved Epaphroditus, and was greatly encouraged. So you take it the other way. When Paul is filling up what is lacking, he's adding the personal touch. Christ is in heaven. So he's adding the personal touch by sharing the gospel. And you would think that people would say, thank you, Paul. Thank you for sharing the good news. Please tell us more. We want to know more about this Jesus who you worship. But that was not Paul's calling. Paul was a one-time persecutor of the church. He was 
knocked to the ground when he saw a light. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when Ananias was sent to greet Saul, to bring in Saul who would become Paul, this is what the Lord says to him in Acts 9, 15 through 16. Go for he, Saul, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He is going to go out and proclaim the gospel. And even though some people responded wonderfully, Jesus warns all disciples in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Since Jesus is not around for them to persecute and to actively hate, they hate his messengers instead. The wrath of the world still is poured out and still directed towards Christ, but they can't get to him. So they go to his body. And so Paul is filling up what is lacking because he knows that communicating this gospel message, you're asking for it. You're asking for it. And what this does is it creates a special fellowship. Like I think a lot of times people want to, uh, they want to get close to Christ. I want to feel close to Christ. So what I'm going to do, I'll listen to this Christian music. I'll memorize the Bible. I'll go on a personal retreat out in nature to feel close to Christ. And there's a place for that. But there's another way to feel close to Christ, to feel real close fellowship with him. And that's to suffer for his message. I, I love getting together with other pastors because we all understand the phrase, Sunday's coming, right? Love to talk more, but Sunday's coming, right? We got a deadline here, got a sermon to preach, and we all feel that together. It's kind of unique to the ministry. I well, live full-time, every week, preaching ministry. But when it comes to ministry itself, there is something to be said for investing in people and the stress that involves. I mean, when you read through the gospel, isn't it clear that Jesus was just tired? He was sleeping in the bottom of the boat. I mean, he was wiped out. I mean, so it's one of those things, are you tired? Well, so was Jesus. Have you ever been betrayed by somebody who you thought was close to you in the midst of ministry? Jesus was too. Have you ever been misunderstood? Like people just aren't getting what you're saying? And they're making you out to be the bad guy? Well, Jesus went through that too. Right there is, when you do ministry, and when Paul's doing ministry, what he's doing is he's enjoying this close communion with Christ as he did it. He's a realization of the cost. And so what was the cost? Well, we know about Paul's famous list in 2 Corinthians 12. I'll start in verse uh, 24. Five times I received from the hands of the Jews the 41 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. I mean, that guy, he suffered. 
But you know what's really interesting is how he caps off this list. 28, and apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. Giving birth to them initially, that was one thing, but there was another form of anguish, which was the anguish is, will Christ be formed in them? I mean, I'll just take a poll here for all you mothers, okay? What creates, what's the greater source of anguish? Childbirth or the anxiety of the next 40 or 50 years? Right, if you just had a baby yesterday, don't answer this question. I mean, and I know I'm in trouble here, but Paul talked about childbirth, okay? So don't give me the looks. Don't give me the looks. But I would imagine, I mean, that anxiety over your, your children, will they be okay? Will they hit the milestones? Are they learning to read? Will they be accepted by their friends? Will they graduate from high school? Will they get a job? Will they get married? Will the marriage survive? You, you go on down the list, it's a lifetime of concern. Paul wasn't a love them and leave them evangelist. He stayed and followed through. It wasn't enough to just plant the church. He wanted Christ to be formed in them. And that is Paul's objective, which kind of brings us to the next point. Pursue Paul's objective. He says, My little children for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I mean, the idea is that of an embryo growing into a fully formed child. You know, coming to Christ doesn't mean that you're automatically changed on the spot. That does happen when we go to heaven. When we die or if we're raptured, we are going to be changed in a moment. But that's not the way it works while we're here on earth. There is a process of change, uh, almost a deprogramming and reprogramming that takes place. I think one of the great passages that reveal this is, is Romans 12, 1 through 2. After talking about all this great doctrine of justification by faith and the promises of God and his fulfillment to the kingdom of Israel. He, he says this, I appeal to you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? So, we are all born with ways of thinking about the world. I think about that passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, right? We do not grieve like the Gentiles who have no hope. Right? If you don't believe in God and you grieve and there's no hope of redemption or seeing them again or you have some shallow hallmark theology, you are going to grieve in a different way from someone who has the hope of the resurrection and the confidence that what God says is true. You look at this world and how they will put their identity in so many things, right? That your true identity is in your, your, your skin color. Your true identity is in your, how you identify as far as your sexual attraction is concerned. Or the Bible says your true identity should be in Christ, right? There's a deprogramming and a reprogramming where you are, you are unlearning what you've been taught and you are learning the truth of Scripture and learning how to embrace it. And this is not an easy or quick process. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 through 14, Therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? When you understand the gospel, the gospel is about reconciliation. It is about forgiveness. And some of you have been hurt in the past. Somebody has done something terrible to you. They have betrayed you. They have wounded you. And the mere thought of them just makes you queasy or sad. It makes you want to punch a wall. And the Bible talks about this concept of forgiveness and, and what would you do if they asked for it? Would you be willing to grant it? All right? I mean, that's kind of real life. That's soul work. And so when you work out the gospel, you're working out all those gospel implications in your life and it changes the way you live. And so when you look at discipleship or, or counseling, uh, a lot of times what counseling is is basically you're trying to help people deal with their problems. On the most basic level, it might be depression, anxiety, anger, marriage crisis, addictions. Now, when this world approaches counseling, you're trying to help them to go to like this steady state, right? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? You're trying to graduate them so that they can do what? And the world would answer that question by the word function. You guys ever heard the word dysfunctional family as opposed to a functional one? Uh, this person has debilitating depression. They cannot function in society. They can't go to work. Uh, this person has uh, an anxiety disorder where they have panic attacks all the time. They can't carry on with normal life. They can't function. Biblical counseling has a different objective. Our goal is formation. We want Christ to be formed in people. We want them to learn, not only believe in the gospel, believe and be born again, but to be transformed by the gospel, to take the truths that we have here and learn how to apply it to their life. And we do this by pointing to some of the great doctrines of Scripture, right? If, if somebody is anxious, like this world is out of control, World War III is going to happen. Before you dig the bunker, read Romans 8. What does that say? Who is in control? Read the 50s in Isaiah. Who is in control? So you take these great, deep, profound doctrines, right, which is what Paul always did in his letters, right? He started off with these indicatives and these great doctrines, but he never stops there and says, you guys figure it out. He takes these doctrines and then he gives directives on how you are to live in light of that. That is the goal. You bring them into formation. They are born again. They're regenerate. You help them understand these great truths and then how to live their life. And so when it came to the Philippians, they were to be a part of this as well. Being formed in Christ means that they seek to form other people to Christ. And it's interesting, a chapter and a half later, in Galatians 6, 1 through 2, what are they to do? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There are to be a redeeming community, bearing each other's burdens and confronting people when necessary. 
And sometimes confronting people has a price. Now remember, one of Paul's great burdens was the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Well, the church in Galatia was in trouble. Paul preached the gospel there. They embraced the gospel. God's spirit was at work in them. And then when he left, they were visited by those who trouble you, those who unsettle you, those who bewitch them. They were uh, what we call Judaizers. They were telling the Galatian Christians, these Gentile converts, that, you know, it's not enough for you to have faith. You need to be circumcised instead, which had all kinds of negative implications. And why were they doing it? Well, Galatians 6.12 says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. In the Roman world at that time, there were two official religions. There was like the Roman religion with Jupiter or Zeus, depending on the language you spoke. And then the other one was the Jewish religion. The Jews gave them such a hassle that they said, okay, that can be an official religion too. So it was one or the other. Well, Christianity was this third way that did not fit into either category. And so it drew the, the focus on this religion. It would be illegal, unacceptable. And many of these converts to Christianity still wanted to be under the umbrella of Judaism so that they would not receive the persecution from the world. This would be like a, a church in a deep blue city that feels tremendous pressure to be LGBT affirming, capitulating and doing that so that they can be acceptable to the broader world. So this is a countercultural religion. And, and Paul understands that these Galatian believers are starting to buy it and they're starting to think, well, maybe we should be circumcised. And he expresses his exasperation in, in Gen Galatians 4, 17 through, through 20. He, he says, uh, he talks about the tactics, how they, the false teachers, make much of you, but for no purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, not only when I am present with you. Now, making much is almost the language of, of courtship, right? If you have your eyes on a special someone, you make a big deal about them. Can I get that chair for you? I'll, I'll pick that up. No, you don't worry about sweetheart. I, I got this. You make them feel like a million dollars. And Paul makes it very clear. It's not wrong to make much of them. When Paul was with the Galatians, he made much of them. But it didn't stop when he left. He still made much of them when he was gone because he had genuine affection for them. In this case, these false teachers are pretending to really care about them, but it's just a cover. They really just care about themselves. And so Paul is in distress here because they make much of you, but for no purpose. They want to shut you out. What they want to do is shut you off from your relationship with me. You have a college-age daughter. Goes off to school. She's beautiful. Uh, she's talented. Seems to be a genuine godly woman. And, and she meets a guy there who is athletic, handsome, has a charismatic personality, deeply uh, 
spiritual, quotes the Bible, understands theology. And they start dating. And as they start dating, you begin to get reports about how he's a church bouncer because every time he's been a part of the church, he's been attacked by the elders. He also is open to God's voice speaking to him. And you're thinking, this may not be a good setup. A man who's not under any spiritual authority, who believes that God speaks to him, might be the recipe of someone who could be spiritually abusive. And so you pull your daughter aside and you say, honey, I'm not sure if this is the right guy for you. He's not under any spiritual authority. He's believing that God is speaking to him. And so what does she do? She tells the boyfriend what you said. And he says, you're the only one who really gets me. You're the only one who really gets me. Everyone else in my life has given up on me, but you're different. Will you marry me? And she says, yes. Do you think you would be in anguish for your child at that point? Do you think you would purchase a gun? <laughs> well, maybe not a gun, a pistol, and you just use the back of the pistol handle to pistol whip him, right? Right? You could see it, right? And Paul is just like, what are you doing? I mean, there are times in ministry where you're just, okay, don't do that. Do this. I mean, years ago, Becky and I, we, you know, we had a young protege at our old church who was gifted, he was talented, had all kinds of ability. And we moved out here and we found out that he was dating a bad news girl. I'm not being judgmental here. <laughs> but she was bad news. And I heard about it. He wasn't telling me about it. Somehow, I like called him like 20 consecutive times and finally got through. He picked up. And I took my turn. What are you doing? You some kind of moron? Do you know what she's trying to do to you, my friend? What? And then I was out of breath and Becky grabbed the phone. This is Satan's design to keep you away from full-time ministry. And then when she got out of breath, I took the phone. We're going WWF, tagging each other. I got it, get me. Well, he called me a couple months later because that girl got church discipline for preying on young women. But we were in anguish. We were in anguish. You know, and we really care about people. I mean, that's what happens. You want to see them change. Paul says in verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. I mean, that's, that's why it's heartbreaking. Yeah, and there's sometimes when you're really trying to rescue somebody. I sit down, I do premarital counseling, and I realize that this, this is a disaster. This guy's divorced. The ink's not even dry. What is she doing? And you know that this will probably not go over well. You find out that a couple's sleeping together and you're like, this is not right. 
somebody's making these terrible decisions, you find out that they're the problem in their marriage, not their spouse, and you have to let them know. And all of a sudden, you're the bad guy, you don't believe in grace, they want to go to somebody who is more loving. If you do ministry enough times, that, that will be the run. And then if you're in the wrong type of environment, other people will say, well, maybe you do need to be more loving. And it seems like they take their side when you're trying to love them to the truth. I mean, so why does Paul do this? Why does he give people his heart? Well, because he loves them. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? He loved them. And that is why he was so deeply invested in them. He wasn't content just to be behind a pulpit and preach. He was involved in their lives and wanted others to be as well. That's why he tells them in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And so here's the question. When he's admonishing, encouraging, what is he talking about? Is he talking about the relationship between the covenant of redemption and the covenant of works? Context suggests something else. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. He wanted people to form Christ-like habits in their relationships. That's why there's all the one another's in the Bible. He is calling on Christians to engage in meaningful, impactful ministry to shape and form Christ in other people. And that begins with evangelism, and it culminates in discipleship. And there's a cost. I remember when I was in California, I was doing some contact evangelism, and I was talking to a Wiccan, right, only in California, and as we were talking, uh, a homeless guy came up, and the guy just gave him $10, and then the guy walked away, and the guy said, I noticed you didn't give him any money. You must be a Republican. <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. Yes, that is true. <laughs> but you know what? He thought by ten, spending 10 bucks and just giving that that he did his job. What he didn't understand is I was also deeply involved in this ministry called Hope Again on Sunset Boulevard. Remember that? I mean, that was eye-opening. I remember leading a couple Bible studies with uh, some former prostitutes. That's fascinating. I had another guy with me, just so you know. Um, but when you really work with those people and really try to help with those people, what you realize is they don't need a check. They don't need money. They need a relationship and they need a person. And a lot of times it's good to just say, I wrote this check, I did this token act, I'm good. I'm a good person because I did that. I voted a certain way, I'm good because I did that. Versus really being involved in somebody's life and being willing to be inconvenienced and, and challenged. Right? Being a redeemer means that you pay the cost. It may not be the money that you give, it may be the life you have to live. It might mean that church is not as enjoyable as you think it would be. It might mean that that perfect dinner party well, we're going to have to invite this other family. It might change the dynamics. The conversations might be all about them that night. might mean that you have a very chatty member of your, your Bible study. And, 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 and if that does happen, just so you know, 
the loving thing is often helping them to be a better part of that Bible study and do talking to them, but you might have to have that conversation. It might mean you have to take some relational risk and just say to somebody else, what's up? It might mean that you have to push back on your introverted instincts and say, I will be with people. It might mean that you enter into the life of a grieving person and just endure their awkwardness. Knowing I'm not very good at this, well, it doesn't really matter. Nobody goes into the grieving process thinking, I'm going to nail this. It's awkward for them too. I mean, redemption, it's a lovely idea until you have to pay the price, right? It's a lovely idea when it happens to you. But often, if you want to be a redeeming community, you never know where it will take the church. See, some churches... um, they used to practice, it was kind of in fashion during the seeker-sensitive movement, to practice the heteronormative principle that you try to reach other people who are like you. You don't want them to be uncomfortable, but have a Christianized version of their class. So if you're white and in the suburbs, you reach other suburban whites. The heteronormative principle. And what that did is almost created a, a church where church growth was like growing a fraternity or sorority. We only want to grow with the right kind of people. And they're not our type. We'll send them to a church down the street. But the thing is, if you're going to grow, the growth is not growth. The growth is to redeem people. And redeemers, we don't select who we're going to redeem and who we're not going to do do that. That's actually the Lord's job, right? He's the one where if he works through us and the gospel message to redeem a soul, guess who's entrusted to follow up? You don't say, you go to the church down the street. If somebody comes to redemption, we have a community obligation to bring them into this community, and that might change things. That might change things. But the fact, fact of the matter is, all churches change. When there's staff relocation, there's change. When somebody passes away, it changes, right? All churches change. And you might fear what will happen if we become too big. You don't have as much access to the pastors, or maybe we have to have an overflow room, and you have to sit in the overflow room, or gas, we might have to have two services. But we're not in control. If the Lord redeems people, we're not going to send them to another community. We're going to integrate them into this one, and there will be a cost for the whole community to do that. And so this is my challenge. If, if we don't change because we become a redeeming community, we're going to change in a different way. If we refuse to become a redeeming community, we're going to change in a different way. Now, I shared this with the college ministry uh, a couple of weekends ago, and I thought I'd share it with you. It's a parable, not a biblical parable. Once upon a time, there was a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occurred. On that coast was a little life-saving hut, very crude, and with only one boat. But there were a few devoted members who gave themselves day and night at the risk of their own lives to rescue those who had been shipwrecked. Soon, this little station became famous because so many were saved. Others wanted to become associated with this very famous enterprise and gave time and money and effort to buy new boats and train more crews. 
After a while, some members were unhappy with such a poorly equipped center, so they enlarged the building and put in better furnishings. The life-saving station became a popular gathering place, and the members began to use it as a club. As time went on, fewer members were interested in the dangerous life-saving missions and instead hired professional crews to do the work. But life-saving motifs were prominent in the decorations, and there was even a liturgical lifeboat in the room where they had initiations. About this time, there was a large shipwreck. The hired professional crews brought in the cold, half-drowned, and dirty people, and the club was messed up. In response, the property committed had a committee had a shower built outside where future victims could clean up before coming in. And a split developed among the members at the next meeting. Most of them wanted to stop the life-saving activities, which were becoming a hindrance to their social lives. Some members insisted that life-saving was their only priority. The majority prevailed, and the minority were told that they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast, and they did. As the years went by, the new station went through exactly the same changes as the one old one had. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History repeated itself, and on that coast today, visitors find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent, but most of the victims now end up drowning. Right, if we pursue a a biblical counseling and discipleship center and open it up to the community as a means of bringing in these people, there will be a cost. And you know what? Jesus paid that cost for us. And should those people convert, he paid that cost for them. And if someone is redeemed under our watch, we will bring them into this redeeming community and corporately seek to shepherd and discipleship to the full formation in Christ. And this is the thing. We're not just doing it for them. Everyone is to have Christ fully formed in them, right? And as we're seeking to fully, fully form Christ in other people, what's happening to our hearts? Christ is being fully formed in us. If we were to have a community of Christ followers... We're to have a community of redeemers. And all of us will want to pay the cost for the redemption of others, to form Christ in others. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you um, with a large task in front of us. Uh, we know that there is a lost community that we're in the midst of and people who need the Lord and and Lord, we, we want to offer up our church to you. We pray that you will form Christ in us so that we will be a redeeming community, a community of redeemers, that all of us will glory in our own redemption and seek the redemption of others through the redeeming message of the cross. I pray that you'll give us opportunities. I pray that our church will embrace them, want them, seek them, that we'll actively find ways and look for ways um, to form Christ in other people. And Lord, if you decide to bring your people here, I pray that we will be um, a congregation that loves them as you do and loves them the way you do. In Christ's name, amen.